You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Maranatha, my brethren, greetings to you. I come to you today to Jerusalem to greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and of all of the saints scattered abroad that the Lord has called out from amongst the nations to himself a people for his own special possession. I also give you greetings on behalf of the men who have traveled with me here today to be with you. Secundus, Sopater, Gaius, Aristarchus, Trophimus, Tychimus, Tychicus, sorry, Timothy, and of course the notable Dr. Luke. And by the way, Dr. Luke has already greeted some of you because he is in the process of putting together a chronicle of the life of our Lord Jesus to give to a man whom we've met recently on some of our travels. Theophilus is his name, a most excellent Theophilus, and Dr. Luke is going to be interviewing some of you while we are here in Jerusalem, eyewitnesses and people who are servants of the Lord and of the Word so that he can present to Theophilus from the first to the last, all of the things that we have been taught and that we have been teaching concerning the Lord Jesus. So please, if Dr. Luke talks with you while we're here, give him your time. If you're an eyewitness of the things that have happened in the church since that very first day of Pentecost that we celebrate today, and of course, if you're an eyewitness of the events of the Lord's life, then Dr. Luke will want to talk with you as well. We come here to you today not only to greet you, but also to deliver an offering that we have been collecting from the saints in the regions of Galatia and Pamphylia, Macedonia and Achaia and all of Asia. And we have been collecting this offering and out of their abundance they have given themselves first to the Lord and then they have given of themselves to you. And these men have traveled with me from the regions of Galatia and Pamphylia and Asia and Macedonia and Achaia to ensure the safe delivery of that offering from the saints abroad. Friends, you have shared with them in spiritual things, and now they are sharing with you in material things. And their abundant supply has become a supply for your need, and I'm sure there will be some, come some time when your abundance will help supply their need. But until then, please, with all grace, receive this offering that's been collected. Friends, the Lord continues to call out a people from among the nations himself. And the Lord continues to see fit to bless the preaching of his word and my ministry and the ministry of the men who travel with me and calling out these people to himself. And I am here today to relate to you one by one the things that the Lord has done through us among the Gentiles. And I'm sure that you have noticed since I came to Jerusalem that the hostility against me has grown more and more intense. The Jews say that I have been preaching against Moses and against our customs and telling all of the Jews who live among the Gentiles that they should abandon Moses and the customs, and you know that that is not true. You know that we preach nothing except what Moses and the prophets said would come to pass. We know that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Moses and the prophets. But friends, they have set their minds against us. They have set their minds against the way and they, with a veil over their eyes, have become blinded, and they have given themselves over to opposing their Messiah. And I'm not sure what the next few days will hold for me. 
I do know that eventually, after I leave Jerusalem, I need to press westward. There's no more room for me in the regions of Asia and Macedonia and Achaia. We need to take the gospel even farther west, and I'll tell you more about that in a little while. But I want to begin by relating to you, one by one, the things that the Lord has done through us and amongst the Gentiles and amongst all of the peoples whom the Lord is calling out for His own possession. It seems like it was only a couple of months ago, but it was three years ago, over three years ago, that I was last here to give you an update on our ministry and what the Lord has done. I have aged quite a bit in those three years since the last time you saw me here. But that is what traveling and beatings and whippings and imprisonments and opposition will do to a man, age him quickly. After leaving here three years ago, Timothy and I traveled to Antioch and we greeted the church there. And we presented to them all the things that the Lord was doing and saw that the church there was doing well. They were under the leadership of Lucius and Manaean and others who were doing a fine job of pastoring that local flock. Timothy and I realized that we could be used more by the Lord if we were to go back and greet some of the brethren that we had already visited and begin to try and establish a central place for the gospel to spread over in Asia. So we left Antioch relatively quickly and we traveled up through the Galatian regions and we visited the Galatian brethren there. And you remember upon my last visit that I told you that I had delivered to the Galatian churches not that letter that James had written after our council here in Jerusalem discussing the issue of circumcision. And it pleases me to report to you that the brethren are doing well. The false teachers, although they have not decreased in number, They have not decreased in their zeal. They have decreased in their effectiveness. No longer do they plague the church in Galatia. They have come back to the gospel as a result of the letter that I wrote to them and a letter from the letter from James and the elders that was issued from the council here in Jerusalem. They've come back to the Lord and the gospel is firmly established in the Galatian regions. We passed through Galatia and the upper regions of Asia and we came down to the city of Ephesus. See, friends, it It was not my desire to go to Galatia that made me decide to go on the third missionary journey. It was my desire to plant the gospel in the region of Asia. Asia. So we left and we passed through and we came to Asia. And there we were greeted by our old friends Priscilla and Aquila right there in Ephesus. And they had been doing phenomenal work there. They had been discipling young people. In fact, there was one notable man, a man named Apollos, whom they had discipled. And Apollos, this is while we were up in Galatia and over in Antioch, Apollos had come to Ephesus. And Priscilla and Aquila were in the synagogue and they were listening to Apollos as he was confounding the Jews there and debating in them and pre- preaching Christ. But they noticed that there was something deficient in Apollos' knowledge of the way and taking him aside privately afterwards, they worked with him and corrected some of the areas that Apollos was deficient in in his knowledge and his understanding. And friends, from that point forward, Apollos became a force to be reckoned with. He was debating with the Jews. He was confounding them in the synagogues. He was a, a, a masterful oratician, a masterful presenter of the Gospel. And what a handle of the Old Testament Scriptures he had. He reminds me a lot of Stephen. Remember Stephen? Paulus is another Stephen. Able to stand toe-to-toe with the Jews and demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ. Well, Aquila and Priscilla quickly realized what kind of a valuable tool Apollos would be. And so they, they sent him over to Corinth. There were some problems in the church at Corinth, and I'll get to that in a second. After Apollos left, that's when Timothy and I arrived in Ephesus. And when we arrived in Ephesus, we noticed something a little askew with these 12 disciples of John the Baptist. 
And we, Timothy and I, came across these men, and in talking to them and listening to them, we noticed that they had a deficiency in their knowledge that was beyond that of Apollos's. They had never even heard that the Spirit had been given and that the Messiah had come, and they had only been baptized with the baptism of John the Baptist. And so we explained to them that the baptism of John the Baptist was one to prepare people to receive the Messiah who was to come, and that this Messiah was Jesus, and that He had come, that He had died, that He had buried, that He had rose again, and He had given the Spirit. And once we had explained the whole Gospel to these disciples of John the Baptist, they trusted in Christ as well. And that sort of started our ministry there in Ephesus. And I did what I have always done in every city. I went into the synagogue in Ephesus and began persuading with them that Jesus was the Christ and preaching to them the message of the Gospel and Christ and and debating with them from the Old Testament Scriptures. You may remember the last time I was here, I mentioned that I had gone to Ephesus and stopped by there on my way through at the end of my second journey. And we had a, a real positive reception. They asked me to stay longer. I couldn't because I had had my head shaved. I was keeping the vow. I wanted to get to Jerusalem. And I told them, I will return again to you if the Lord wills. Well, the Lord willed, and He brought us to Ephesus. And when I went into the synagogue, they were they were happy to see me and happy to hear the message of the Gospel. But friends, over the course of three months, as I was persuading them about Jesus, that He is the Christ, their hearts became hardened. You know how that happens when you... You hear somebody preach or you hear somebody teach and you probably know people that this has happened to. And, and, and they sit under the preaching of the Word and they think to themselves, this is the best thing I've ever heard. This is the best teaching I've ever heard. This is the best preaching I've ever heard. And then after long, their hearts become hardened and they no longer can endure sound doctrine. That's what happened to the Jews in the synagogue at Ephesus. Over the course of those three months, their hearts became hardened. And they began to blaspheme the way and to speak evil of the way. And so they kicked me out. We left the synagogue. And right about that time, God in His providence, as He has a way of doing, He opened up for me an opportunity to teach in the school of Tyrannus. So right there in Ephesus, while school was out of session at the school of Tyrannus, I, during the heat of the day, while everybody else was having their siesta, I would come into the school and I would begin to teach classes there. And people would, were coming from all over Asia, from Colos and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and all of those cities that surrounded Ephesus. They were coming and the preaching and the teaching was going out and churches were being planted so that all of Asia heard the Word of the Lord. You would not believe the hunger that people have for the Word of God. And they were eating it up and churches were being planted and the Gospel was spreading. And at the same time, the Lord was bearing witness through signs and wonders that He was doing through me and through my ministry, extraordinary miracles. If there is such a thing as an extraordinary miracle, all miracles are extraordinary or they wouldn't be miracles. But these miracles were of a completely different nature. You see, I was working down in the marketplace during the days, and the apron that I have, the handkerchief that I would wipe the sweat off of my brow, those things were being taken to the sick and the diseases were leaving them quite apart from me doing anything. That's the type of miracles that the Lord was doing. Not only that, but the demons were leaving people and the evil spirits were leaving people. And you know how the enemy of our souls loves to offer a counterfeit in place of everything that is genuine? See, we, we're not ignorant of his devices. We know how he works. Well, he did this through seven willing accomplices, sons of a man named Sceva. He was a high priest. He called himself the high priest. The high priest is here in Jerusalem. But this Skiva, he's got his credentials, and I think he got them through a, a, 
box of Cracker Jacks or something. He's a quack. Called himself a high priest and he had his, his seven sons who would go out and they would name names and incantations over people and the spirits would leave them. And Satan was trying to do this to draw attention to himself away from the true gospel and away from the true messenger and away from the true message. But the Lord turned it back on him. Because as the seven sons of Stephen did this to this one man who had a spirit, they were in his house and they said something like, um, we adjure you in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches or something of that nature. And, and the demon-possessed man who had the spirit, he said, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you? And then this one man jumped on all seven of those guys and he beat them severely and stripped them and they ran naked and wounded from his house. All seven of them. And the word of the Lord even through that was being magnified because you cannot keep something like that secret and everybody began to hear about this. And the people in the church, and one of the ways that the Lord used even that incident to bless the church in Ephesus was that the people in the church, when they heard about Sceva and about his sons and about what had happened in that instance, they realized that this demonic thing, the occult stuff, the, the tools of Satan and the false religions are nothing to be toyed with. And all of the stuff that they were doing behind the scenes and in the shadows with their incantations and their books and their scrolls, they brought all of this out into the public and they burned them publicly. And there was a massive repentance in the church in Ephesus as they gave up all of these things. Friends, that's what happens when the Lord does a work and when His Word is spreading. And that's what happened in Ephesus. And they brought all of their books and all of their incantations and they burned them. And the value of them was 50,000 pieces of silver. A massive repentance. This is the type of stuff that was going on in the church of Ephesus. Now, I was glad to hear about that, and I was glad to see that, and that was tremendously encouraging to me. And I'll tell you something, at the time while I was in Ephesus, I soaked up every last bit of encouragement I could get, and I'll tell you why. During the day I was, I was working in the marketplace while everybody else was in school, and then during the heat of the day I was teaching in the school of Tyrannus. And so if I wasn't working, I was teaching, and if I wasn't teaching, I was working. And I was incredibly busy. In fact, I would say that of all of the years that I have been alive and been in ministry, there's been no period of my life when I have been busier than I was in Ephesus. I was teaching, I was working, and then friends, there is this church in Corinth. Now, I told you last time I was here, uh, I asked you to pray for the church in Corinth. Because, as I expressed to you then, I'm not quite sure, at least at that time, I was not quite sure. Now I am sure. I was not quite sure if they had fully grasped the reality of their sanctification in Christ. The corrupt culture, the immorality that surrounded that church, I was afraid was going to have a, an impact and an influence on the lives of the believers. And so I was, while I was in Ephesus, I was dealing with this situation in Corinth. Let me backtrack just a little bit. When I got to Ephesus, I heard of some issues that were going on in Corinth and that the church had some things that needed to be addressed. So I wrote a letter. Wrote a letter to Corinth and I sent it across and after some months, a letter came back and it was a response to my first letter and it had all kinds of questions. Questions about marriage and divorce. Questions about the resurrection. Questions about spiritual gifts. Questions about the Lord's Supper. And so I wrote a second letter to the church in Corinth, and I answered all of those questions. But with their letter, with their questions, came reports from some households in Corinth that there were divisions among them. 
they had not only questions about some doctrinal issues, but they also had immorality in their midst that they were not dealing with. They were not exercising church discipline. There were divisions in the church. Everybody was biting and backbiting against each other. It was a horrible situation. And so I wrote a second letter to the church in Corinth. And I sent that by the hand of Timothy. And I waited. And I waited. And eventually Timothy came back. And I found out that the church in Corinth was worse than I had imagined. Worse than I had heard. There were false teachers in the church at Corinth. And if you have ever been slandered, maligned, and had your character assassinated, and that done publicly, then I don't have to tell you how much that hurt when the false teachers did that in the church at Corinth. And they listened to it. And they went along with it. And they put up with it. Because for 18 months, on the second journey, Timothy and I poured our lives into these people, and we loved those brethren. And that's what they returned. Hatred, slander, gossip, maligning, character assassination. That's what they returned for the love that we gave them. Now, originally I had put off going to Ephesus. I didn't want to make another trip to Ephesus at that time. There was so much going on in, sorry, to Corinth. There was so much going on in Ephesus and so much busyness and teaching and preaching and working and traveling and all of these things with the school of Tyrannus that I put off going there. But once Timothy came back with that report, having delivered that second letter, I realized that I needed to go to Ephesus myself. So I made a trip to Ephesus, and I can only describe that visit as, if I choose one word, it would be painful, sorrowful. It was horrible. I got to the church, and I found that nearly the entire congregation had turned their hearts against me and against my ministry. In fact, during one of our times there publicly, several of the false teachers stood up and began accusing me and saying malicious things about me. And we left Corinth for Ephesus back again rather dejected, very sorrowful, very hurt. The Lord is gracious. He sustains us during those times. We got back to Ephesus and I wrote a third letter to the church of Corinth. It was a severe letter, a very strongly worded letter, in hopes that by being severe with them and strong that I might push them toward repentance. I figured I've got nothing to lose with this church. They've already turned against me. They've already listened to these false brethren who came in claiming to be apostles and such and had just slandered us and maligned our character and accused us of almost everything. I had nothing to lose with them, so I wrote them a very severely, strongly worded letter, and I sent it by the hand of Titus. Now, Titus, if you've never met Titus, he's kind of a bulldog. You just send him into the situation, and he goes after it. So I sent this by Titus. And I made arrangements to meet Titus in Troas after he had delivered the letter to Corinth. You see, at about that time, this is toward the end of my three years, about that time I was making plans to leave Ephesus. The ministry was firmly established, the gospel was firmly established, and I was going to leave. Just recently, you remember that the emperor Claudius has died. This was just several months ago. Claudius is the emperor who expelled all the Jews from Rome and said that no Jews could come in. I couldn't go to Rome, even though I had a burning desire to visit Rome for a long time. Now with Claudius dead, the decree had been lifted that the Jews could not go back into Rome. And so I determined that I was going to visit Jerusalem after I passed through Macedonia and Achaia, and that I would visit Jerusalem with this offering that I was collecting and that we've delivered here to you. And then after that, I would go to see Rome. So we were making preparations to leave, and it was right about the time that we were getting ready to leave that all of the opposition in, in Ephesus sort of came to a head. 
Now, it's difficult to describe this to you because in my heart I was grieving over what had happened in Corinth. I had sent letters to them and I was waiting for word from Titus or from somebody as to what the situation in Corinth would be. All of the teaching and the preaching and the working and friends, I was just drained, drained to the point where I didn't think I could put anything else into it. And then right about that time, all of the opposition came to a head in Ephesus. And just when you think you can't take anything else, the Lord gives you or allows you to endure another dose of sorrow or pain or grief, but He never gives us more than we can bear. And Demetrius, the head of the craftsmen's union, the the guild, the workmen's guild, he oversaw the temple and the manufacture of all of the the idols of Artemis and the and the miniature temples and all of the paraphernalia that went with the worship of Artemis in Ephesus. He oversaw the manufacture of all of that. And with the book burning and with people turning to the Lord and all of Asia heard, hearing the word of the Lord, after three years, Demetrius realized that his sales were slipping and his attendance at the temple was going down every spring at that festival. So he gathered together all of the workmen and all of the craftsmen who were responsible for manufacturing those things. And listen, I'll tell you honestly, all of this was financially motivated. But Demetrius didn't cast it into that light. Oh, he said, we don't want Artemis to be dethroned from her magnificence. And so he uh, riled up all of the craftsmen because they realized that since I was persuading a number of people to turn from that false worship to the living and true God, he persuaded them to start sort of a rally. They did. They rushed out into the streets and started screaming out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And the whole city was filled with confusion. Now, I wasn't down in the city that day, but Gaius and Aristarchus were, and you can ask them after the service what their perspective on it was. But seeing that they were my traveling companions and they were the only ones that were in arm's reach, they grabbed Aristarchus and Gaius and they drugged them down into the theater. And everybody rushed into the theater and the the theater quickly filled up with all of these people. And you know how crowds are? They... If one guy does it, everybody has to do it. And it's sort of the mob mentality. Everybody kind of rushed in and there was the happening thing and the theater filled up. To be honest with you, I don't think most of them knew even why they had come. And they were all shouting, lots of confusion. And the Jews were there, the Jews who had opposed our message, and they put up Alexander to make an address to the crowd. I think trying to distance the Jews from us. And once they realized that Alexander was a Jew, they started crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And they did this for two hours. And I wanted to rush in there because I felt that Gaius and Aristarchus were in danger. I've been the victim of mob violence. And I was afraid that they would stone them or kill them or beat them. And I wanted to go in, but the believers kept telling me not to. And even the Asiarchs, the religious leaders in Ephesus, some of them were my friends. They kept pleading with me not to go in. So I didn't go in. And after two hours, the city clerk, the mayor of the city, walked out into the theater and quieted the crowd. And he said to them, you know that these men are not robbers of temples or thieves and they've done nothing wrong and the courts are in session. If you have something against them, take them to court. But as far as this gathering goes, this needs to be dismissed because the Romans are going to hear about it and it's going to sound like a riot and everybody's going to accuse us of an unlawful assembly. And then as quickly as everybody came into the theater, they left the theater and it was over with. (laughs) And the Lord delivered Gaius and Aristarchus because they're here with us today. The Lord delivered me. And... After that, I realized that I would best move on, lest I cause something more like that to happen and endanger the Christians. 
So meeting with the disciples, we greeted them and said our farewells, and we took off, and I traveled up to Troas. Now, see, that was where I was supposed to meet Titus. I didn't find Titus in Troas. And there was a great opportunity there for, for ministry, an open door that the Lord gave me, but I had no rest in my spirit since I didn't find Titus there, and I pressed on to Macedonia where I found Titus. Now, you're probably all wondering, what happened with the Corinthian situation? I'll tell you what happened with the Corinthian situation. Titus's ministry and the severely worded letter had brought about a repentance in the church for the most part. There were still some people there that had to be dealt with. And so I made plans to go down from Macedonia into Achaia to go to Corinth and to finish resolving this issue and dealing with it. So I sent Timothy and Erastus ahead of me into those regions and I stayed in, after staying in Asia for a little while, we went through to Macedonia and Philippi, Thessalonica, greeted the brethren there and made our way down to Corinth. I stayed in Corinth for three months, and while I was there, I wrote a letter to the church at Rome, the believers in Rome. I wanted to, to tell them that I was planning to come and that I was going to come and see them soon. So I wrote that letter, and I sent that to Rome. And after spending three months in Corinth, we determined that we wanted to be back in Jerusalem here for the day of Passover, now for the celebration of Passover. Now, you, know, you notice we weren't here for Passover. We just barely made it here in time for Pentecost. That is because as we were getting ready to leave Corinth, we discovered that there was a plot that had been formed to take my life. So rather than going by boat, which would make all of us an easy target and the offering an easy catch, we determined that we would travel by land. So we traveled by land all the way up through and we got back to Troas and we greeted the brethren in Troas. And this is kind of an interesting story. We greeted the brethren in Troas and we were having an evening service with them and we were up on the third story of the house and the place was packed and, and because I was leaving the next morning, I kind of extended my message a little while. It went well on and on and on until midnight. And I promise I won't keep you here till midnight. But they extended the message until midnight and with the lamps on and the flickering lights and the smell of that burning oil and full stomachs full of food, there was a young man, a good young man. He had given up his seat for all of the adults and he was sitting in the windowsill at the back and he was fighting with that feeling that some of you are fighting with right now, that desire to nod off and go to sleep. And he gave in to that temptation and let this serve as a warning to you. He fell out of the window three stories down and hit the concrete and he died. Now, as you well know, because this has probably happened to you many times, when somebody dies during the middle of one of your worship services or your sermon, it creates quite a confusion and quite a ruckus. I'm sure that's happened to you. Maybe you just think that your pastor is boring you to death. I've heard him preach. But he died, and we ran downstairs out onto the street. And when I picked that boy up in my arms, I realized right then what the Lord was going to do. And I said, don't worry, his life is in him. And the Lord, by his grace, through my embrace, gave life back to this young man. And I still had more preaching to do, so we went back upstairs and we broke bread and I preached until daybreak, an all-nighter. And you know the people didn't nod off after that? <laughs> Nobody fell asleep after that resurrection. The following morning we left, and we traveled on boat down the western coast of Asia. We came to Miletus. I could have stopped in Ephesus, and believe me, I wanted to stop in Ephesus, but I knew that the minute I set foot in that town, those believers would never let me leave again. And so I determined that the last thing that I needed to do in Ephesus was to call the elders of the church to Miletus, it's about 35 miles, and they came down and 
we had a time of prayer together and I gave them some of the last bits of wisdom that I could offer to them. And one of the things I said to them affected them more than anything else. I told them that I would never see their face again. Um, I'm not planning on going back to Ephesus again. That was my final farewell. And they grieved over that more than anything else that I said. And after delivering to them my message and and asking them to shepherd the flock there and sort of handing them those responsibilities, we tore ourselves away from those brethren and and we set sail and we landed in Tyre. Now, I know that I'm not going to see their face again because in every city that I was visiting along the way, the Lord was revealing to me that when I got here today to you, to Jerusalem, that I would be facing some suffering. And I don't know exactly what is going to happen, but at least I didn't at that time, know exactly what's going to happen, but the Lord was just warning me and encouraging me, strengthening me, trying to make sure that I knew that He was in control of all of this. And in every city, the Spirit of God was warning me that these things were going to come to pass. So we made our way to Tyre, and while I was at Tyre, we stayed there seven days with some of the brethren, and they, uh, one of the prophets during one of our services and our times together, warned me about what was going to happen when I got here, and the brethren kept begging me not to set foot in Jerusalem. And we left there after a time of prayer and meeting with those men and women and their families. We made our way to Caesarea where we stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist. And he sends his greetings to you, by the way. He's doing well in the ministry there. Many people are still coming to the Lord because of his ministry and his passion to share Christ with the lost. So we stayed with Philip and his daughters, and while we were there, Agabus, whom you know, he came down from Judea, and and uh, he gave me a prophecy concerning what was to happen to me while we're here in Jerusalem, that I was going to be bound. And having spent the time there with Agabus and having been warned, warned, we have made our way here to Jerusalem. We're staying with Nason, whom you know, you know he's a disciple of long standing, part of the church here. We're staying with him this week. Uh, Friends, I wish I could go on to share with you all of the other things that have happened, the thousands and thousands of lives that have been changed by the Word of God, the planting of the churches, and I wish I could describe to you the the bodies of believers in Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira, all through Asia, and all that the Lord has done. I wish I could give you all of that, but my time is up, and Lord willing, we'll have some time individually in the days and weeks ahead, and I can share with you personally what has happened, and you can talk to Sopater or Aristarchus or Tychicus or Timothy or Dr. Luke about what we have done in the last while. They'd be happy to talk to you and update you on all of that. For now, I'm a free man. I don't know how long that's going to last. But friends, I, I do know this, that whatever happens, it's not in the Romans' hands, it's not in the Jews' hands, it's not in my hands. That's in the Lord's hands. I do know that much. Let me share with you a couple of things that I've learned in the last three years. First of all, friends, I have learned how central the Word of God is to the life and health of any church. The last three years is not a story about Paul. The last three years is not a story about churches or people. It is a story of the spread of the Word of God and the story of how God is calling out for himself a people from among the nations who will bear his name and be his special possession, a people zealous for good works. And that has happened primarily because of the teaching of the Word of God. The Ephesian church and the church in Asia flourished because they were obedient to and they listened to and they loved and they honored the Word of God. And the church in Corinth was a church filled with problems and sin and destruction because they were a church who would not submit themselves to the Word of God. Now friends, listen. 
your health as a believer and the health of this church will only go so far and will only go so high as your commitment to and your love for the Word of God. And just a word of warning, do not think for one minute that God will genuinely bless the man or the woman, the church or the ministry, who neglects His Word. The second thing I have learned or realized is that the Lord brings fruit out of adversity. I have suffered in many cities. Ephesus probably had more suffering than in any other single city because I was there for three years. There were imprisonments in Ephesus. There were beatings in Ephesus. There were things that I endured, the hostility, the working, the teaching, the situation in Corinth, all of the assaults that came from across the Aegean from the church at Corinth and what they were saying about me and what was being spread throughout all of that region because of that church. Friends, a very painful time. But my time in Ephesus was also the most fruitful ministry I have ever had in all of my years as being a believer. At no time has the Lord magnified His Word and magnified His ministry and done more than He did in the last three years. This was perhaps the zenith of all of my missionary career. The Lord brings fruit out of adversity. And this may sound odd to you and this may sound weird, but listen, don't run from hard times. The Lord has not promised to take you out of adversity, but He has promised to pull you through adversity if you will hold tightly to Him. He brings fruit out of adversity. And the third thing I have learned, friends, is that we can trust the Lord to work out the details. Now, you know that I want to go to Rome. At the same time, the Lord has revealed to me that I am to be here in Jerusalem, that I am going to suffer. Now, perhaps it might be that through the prayers of the Roman church, through your prayers and through the prayers of saints everywhere, that the Lord will allow me to suffer and then to be released and to move on and go to Rome. I don't know how all of that's going to happen. My desire to go to Rome, the necessity that I be here in Jerusalem and I finish this ministry and, and all that the Spirit has revealed to me as part of God's plan for me, I, I don't know how all of those details are going to work out. Maybe the Lord will not allow me to see Rome. Maybe the Lord will call me home instead. I would prefer that. You say, would you rather go to Rome or would you rather go home? I'd rather go home. But the Lord may take me to Rome. We'll see how that... He works out the details of that. That's in His plan. The Word of God is central. God brings fruit out of adversity. And we trust Him to work out all the details. Friends, I thank you for your patience. I thank you for your time. And I thank you for your prayers. Let's have a word of prayer together before we leave. Father, we do thank you for safely bringing us all here today to this place. We thank you for the grace that you have shown us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the fact that you are calling out a people for your own possession from all of the nations all over the world and that you, conti that you continue to do that today. Even in the midst of all of the affliction and the adversity, you are continuing to bring forth your perfect plan and you are accomplishing your work. We thank you that that is your doing. We thank you that you have decided to use us and that you stooped to use us in this ministry of sharing Christ with people everywhere. We pray that you'd give us the courage to do that. We also know, Lord, that you allow us to face adversity and we do not know what the future holds, but we know that you hold the future. And so we can entrust ourselves to you and ask for that ever-present, all-sufficient grace to be extended to us for the glory of Christ and for the mighty advance of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.